Sure, we have 30 seconds to tell you that drivers who switch to Progressive could save big. But then what? Well, radio has been called theater of the mind. So let's tell a story with sound effects. Wow, it's like I was in the story. Almost makes me forget this was supposed to be about saving big with Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Annie had an earache on a Saturday of all days. So her mom brought her to Minute Clinic at CVS, where you can see a provider, fill a prescription, and grab essentials like pain relief products, all in one visit. Even on evenings and weekends. You can even see us online with telehealth options. For quality, affordable care on your schedule, visit Minute Clinic at CVS. That's how healthier happens together. Services vary by location. Prescriptions can be obtained at pharmacy of choice. Visit MinuteClinic.com for details. Hello, everyone. Back again with a podcast that is filled with some really deep insight into where we're at as human beings and where we may be going. I'm pretty pumped to present to you guys Liam McClintock. Liam is an awesome human being who really gives a lot of time, research, and thought into how we behave. Liam's big into meditation. Uh, and we had gotten to a great conversation about some silent uh, retreats that he's done in Asia, uh, talking about kind of the second philosophical renaissance and a little bit of discussion about psychedelic research and where that's going. And overall, it's all just tools to understanding ourselves better, opening our minds, and to see where that leads us as people. So I'm really pumped for you guys to listen to our conversation. Uh, excited that you get to jump into some really deep, deep dives into how we behave and where we're headed in this kind of global awakening related to looking inward. So without further ado, Liam McClintock. So I was introduced to you through a friend of mine, Michelle Zellner. I'm not sure. Do you know Michelle? Yes. Yeah, M- Michelle. Uh, Michelle's great. We've known each other. I think we got to know each other through a, uh, a group that meets here every once in a while in Denver called Healthcare Collective. And oh, she's nice. doing some great work. Yeah, you know, Michelle reached out to me on my LinkedIn and was like, oh, I see your podcast. I love podcasts. I've been checking out yours. And she's like, I want to be on your podcast. I was like, okay, sure. <laughs> Sounds good. And uh, we just we formed a really good relationship. And one day while I was on LinkedIn, she sent me a message. She goes, I want you to meet Liam. You got to check out some of his posts. I was like, okay, cool. And I saw your post on, uh, which we'll get into, the psychedelic research and stuff. And I was like, oh, I have to talk to this guy. I got to talk to him. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I just had to. I was, it's like a big topic for me. And we'll jump into that. But I loved your bio. It seems like you're doing a lot of great things. And so where does the jump come from going to from Yale, venture capitalist, and then off to Asia? How does that occur there? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I ask myself that too. I'm not <laughs> sure how it all happened. But I think, you know, I was I was getting really into meditation uh, when I was working in in, uh, in venture capital and started 
taking my practice deeper. Um, you know, I'd, I'd started out with just kind of the, the meditation apps. And then um, in Boston, there's some really great meditation centers uh, in insight meditation center in Cambridge, pretty famous. And then uh, Kripalu out in Western mass. So I was going on retreats there and started to uh, started to get, get deeper into meditation. I was realizing all these benefits that started to come that were just, a lot more than the kind of surface level level benefits that were being pitched by what, what I understood meditation to be. So, you know, it's, a, it's often marketed as like a quick fix stress reduction tool. And initially, yeah, it was great for that. It, it, you know, it, it improved my um, ability to be calm and present, but then there were just all these deeper benefits that were, coming. Um, you know, changes in my behavior, self-awareness, um, you know, just overall philosophical changes, areas of my life where I realized I wasn't really aligned with my values. Um, and, um, and I also, and so having experience or experiencing all that, I realized that, you know, there was something substantial going on. So I started doing, reading a lot of the scientific literature around meditation was really just blown away by all these studies that are mm. coming out in the last decade or so showing that you can actually train your brain like a muscle. I mean, the brain is constantly rewiring itself. Um, this, this mechanism called neuroplasticity, where the brain is constantly reshaping itself depending on how you use it. And this helped me um, get off of medication that I was on for ADHD mm-hmm. with my OCD. So there was just all these incredible benefits coming. And, and once I understood the science behind it, I got so excited that I, um, I wanted to try to bring this to a wider audience, but I first wanted to learn more about it myself. So I, that's when I left my job and, and went off to study meditation in Asia for a while. Wow. So where did you go in Asia uh, to deepen your experience or your study of uh, meditation? Yeah, I went off to Bali, um, mm-hmm. all Indonesian island, and it's really become a center for a lot of meditation and yoga. I did a, a 300-hour um, meditation teacher training program there and then went off into the mountains and meditated with with the, the uh, buddhist monks there wow um, did a uh, a silent vipassana retreat um yeah wow and i mean that must have been amazing so well how long were you silent like how, was that days or how long did it last um yeah so the in the meditation teacher training program we had three days of silence at the end um and then the Vipassana was supposed to be 10 days. Um, I got really sick from the food. So I, I only was there for three days of silence. Um, but I've since then gone, um, gone and done another one of these in the U.S. They're actually all over the world through Goenka's, um, this, this wealthy uh, businessman named Goenka mm-hmm. set up treats and they're actually free all over the world. There's like 350 centers. So I did one in, in uh, Utah. And so what was, what is that like when you're, you know, that kind of sounds daunting a little bit about being silent for three days, you know, like what was the thought process going into that? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, it's amazing when you cut out, um, when you cut out all the information that we're normally consuming, which includes our conversations with other people, it's just you and your mind. And, when you're alone with your thoughts for that long, you start to realize how crazy you are. No matter who you, <laughs> you start to realize that you've actually been talking to yourself for your entire life, and it's like the volume gets turned up on that inner voice, on that inner chatter. And 
you start to, and initially it's very uncomfortable because you start to realize, oh my God, like what, you know, and you hear all these complaints and you hear all these judgments of other people. You hear all these, uh, you know, there's part of you that's trying to just get out of there is part of you that's telling you that it's, it's not worth it, that you shouldn't, shouldn't be doing this. Um, yeah. And you just kind of learn, you know, the, the practice is just learning to observe that without judging it. And then slowly the voice starts to calm down. The chatter starts to grow a little bit um, into just more background noise. And, and you really get some, some quite blissful experiences. And, and um, it's, it's very beneficial. Have you ever done um, float therapy before? Yes. Yes. I've done that a few times. I'm it's, doing it tomorrow, man. It's the first time I'm ever going to try it. And um, I'm thinking like, man, I just want to, well, I may be thinking like I'm going to be with my thoughts like that. It might be very similar on some level. Yes. I think, I think it is very similar. Um, those, those isolation tanks or float tanks uh, cut out all the, the sensory stimuli. So, you know, for those who aren't familiar, you're, you, you can't see anything. You can't hear anything. The, the water that you're floating in is body temperature, so you can't feel anything. Um, so really all your senses are deprived. And because, um, because we're normally taking in a lot of data, um, I wish I could remember the statistic offhand, but it's something like 11 million bits per second is what mm. our conscious mind is having to process. And that's, that's auditory data, that's uh, sensory data, you know, touch, feel, um, um, eyesight takes up actually the most data. Um, and so we're, we're, our brain's having to process all that. As soon as you cut all that out, Oh, and, and by the way, only 50 bits um, that I think I am getting right. Only 50 bits of that 11 million is consciously processed per second. Mm. Um, and so as soon as you cut all that, all that out, it's like the brain, well, initially it starts to freak out because it, it starts to <laughs> come up with its own. It just starts to make stuff up, which is why some people hallucinate. Um, but then you, uh, yeah, it's just you and, and your mind. It's like a brain in a jar, you know, it's just <laughs> you and your tank and, and you, yeah, you, and and the Navy SEALs are using these things now to apparently they, they said that they can teach a Navy SEAL a language in six weeks instead of six months by by delivering the uh, the whatever it is, like an audio tape or language mm -hmm. learning software in these float tanks. Whoa, jeez, man. I guess Duolingo is not there anymore. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. Now, you know, I think I've always been well in the last 10 years, I've been really open to new experiences to deepen my mind and you know i've done meditation you know like a lot of people have done yoga and then i think you know I, I was always kind of searching for more opportunities to broaden my my idea of you know where i'm at in my mind and so i was like i gotta try this flow therapy it re sounds really fascinating to me yeah. uh this lack of you know just kind of being in this space and so i'm really looking forward to it yeah, I, I highly recommend. I remember the first time I walked out of one of those things, I felt like someone had just pressed the reset button. Really? <laughs> like I came out of there like. That gets had been released. Wow. Is this something like you're you're doing often or it's just you did a few times or here and there? Yeah, I think I've done it about four or five times now. Um, I try to I'd like to be able to get get in there more often i think it'd be awesome if i could do it like every week it's it's just it's kind of expensive so it's yeah read every once in a while yeah i just saw that it's um well i live like right on the border of canada and here in washington so 
like, I'm going to try it here in Washington. And it's like $65 for an hour. And I'm like, okay, I'm just, you know, that seems expensive for this. Yeah. But, but in Canada, the dollar's different and it's, it's super cheaper for it to be in Canada. So I might go there if I like this, this one that I'm doing. Um, but they do like a membership where you can like, you know, float a couple times a month for a certain amount of money. And I'm like, this could be a thing for me potentially. Um, cause I enjoy kind of pushing my mind to different places and my networking's about that pushing my mind, mm. you know, s- connecting with other people, creating meaningful and lasting relationships that we're nurturing, uh, with each other, you know, nurturing our spirits with each other and how we feel about each other and just creating more connection. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's such a great tool. You know, I think it's just another tool in the toolbox and it's, it's gained widespread. I mean, it's starting to be pretty popular and, you know, Joe Rogan's a big proponent. He's always talking about it on his podcast. He's got one in his, in his house. So I think, uh, I think more people start doing that. Definitely. You know, I, I listen to his podcast. Like I think a lot of the world, a lot of people listen and uh, he talks about that. That's kind of where I got the idea to try to, I was like, this sounds interesting. You know, I hadn't really thought about it too much before then. And then when I lived in Las Vegas, there was a float therapy place near my house. And I always went by it. I'm like, what the hell is that? <laughs> like, what are you doing there? <laughs> you know? And now as I learn more about it, I think this isn't, this isn't very new, right? I mean, it's been around a while, correct? Yeah, it's been around a while, and there's actually a really interesting story around its uh, creation. Um, and I'm sure there were other people who, who had thought about isolating themselves in, in a tank before. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's this one researcher um, who was starting to – he was really interested in altered traits and how to get the brain to, um, you know, create these – you know, he was doing a lot of drugs. This was like back in the 70s, but he was, do- <laughs> he was doing it in a scientific – context and he was yeah. researching how to get into altered states and trying to discover something that he called primordial uh, consciousness hmm. and um and actually there, there was a movie made about him i think it's called altered altered traits um, hmm. made back in the 80s or so um and but anyway so he back in oh sorry 1954 is when he um, first designed the, he's attributed with first designing the float tank. And uh, he hypothesized that depriving a human of all of the sensory data could actually isolate the origin, the original state of the mind. Um, this guy's name was, was uh, John Lilly. Um, and, and so even though he was considered to be kind of out there at the time by the, the scientific community, um, he was, you know, he was studying this stuff in a, in a dolphin, sorry, in a, uh, um, in a, in a scientific context. And then, yeah. uh, was, was actually at one point claiming he could talk to dolphins <laughs> because he would take LSD and go into these tanks. And he said it like brought him into this altered state where he could communicate with dolphins. So he, he, you know, <laughs> wow. was, uh, was pretty out there, but yeah, the movie altered <laughs> altered states sorry not altered traits i'm gonna watch it man (laughs) it's 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 really it's really kind of cool guy thought he was aquaman i mean he's he's like (laughs) yeah it's awesome you know i i think like the type of person i am now is very different from the person i was many years ago where i'd be like meditation float therapy 
you know, psychedelics, no thanks. And, but I think as I've gotten older, I've certainly changed and, you know, my different experiences have led me to that. So with your, with meditation looks like, I mean, you've really gone in deep with meditation. What do you think for people getting into meditation, maybe the biggest misconception is about meditation? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there are so many misconceptions. I think the biggest one that I get in the workshops that I give people say that they can't quiet their mind. They, mm -hmm. You know, they can't stop their thoughts. So the misconception there is that meditation is all about stopping thoughts and it's not at all. I mean, it's, you won't be able to stop your thoughts, especially, you know, at first now there's later de decades down the road, maybe they, they actually might cease entirely. There's some people who claim that they no longer have self-referential thinking, hmm. um, but it's really not the point of meditation. It's, you know, it's, I think the, the analogy I like to give is that if you've been spending your whole life under a waterfall, getting battered by thoughts, in other words, you know, if you have positive thoughts, it's good that maybe the water's warm. If you have negative thoughts, you, you become in that moment, you're entirely, you're suffering. You've, um, you know, you've become a negative person in that, in that moment. Meditation is the tool that's teaching you how to step back under the waterfall and observe the thoughts objectively pouring down instead of being, getting battered by them. You're just observing them. So it doesn't matter what the thoughts are you know, they could actually be negative thoughts. You're just, you're just watching them mentally. And I think that's really a superpower. Um, cause yeah. you, suddenly you start to realize you, you are not your thoughts, even though that's something we, we kind of identify with through most of our lives. Um, you start to realize that you actually don't control your thoughts all that much, although you can start to kind of reprogram them with certain like positive, t positive psychology techniques and whatnot. But meditation is really just about, um, well, at least mindfulness meditation is all about um, forming a better relationship with your thoughts. It's not about stopping your mind entirely or going blank. So people are thinking, hey, I'm going to get in this and I'm just going to like quiet my mind completely. Like, hey, just get me to stop thinking about having my thoughts. So people are thinking, having those kind of desires with it. Yeah. And then I think there's because of that expectation that they're going to just be in this blissed out state. Um, <laughs> They get frustrated and they think, I can't do this. This isn't for me. Um, but the truth is, uh, you know, it, the, the most powerful initial benefits of meditation come from the increased self-awareness. So when you sit down and observe your, your mind, um, and that's the best way to understand your mind. You can't understand your mind by reading about it in a textbook. You have to sit down. And, right. and that's what, that's what, I mean, that's what the Buddha realized. He was really the first psychologist in a lot of ways. He sat down and carefully observed his mind at work and therefore was able to understand its tendencies. What was it trying to get him to do in each moment? What was it programmed to, to want and crave towards? And he started to under, and the, the closer you observe and the longer you observe your mind, the better you get to know it. Um, and so to me, that's actually the biggest benefit of meditation. So you, you really can't fail at that as long as you're trying to do it, as long as you're putting in the effort, um, you are, you are training your mind. So why do you think we've seen, um, at least I've seen it and, you know, I've seen more information or uh, just observing that meditation and kind of spiritual aspects of people are awakening a little bit more. I mean, I've noticed that, you know, meditation has become much more mainstream than it has been in the past. Um, have you noticed that? 
Yeah, certainly. And I don't know how much of that is my own bias, just being in the industry now and only pretty much consuming this kind of material. Mm -hmm. Um, But I know I think it's undeniable just that uh, meditation is spreading widely. I think a lot of a lot of spiritual teachers, uh, you know, I think about Eckhart Tolle, he talks about Mm -hmm. evolution of consciousness by the planet starting to wake up. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think any any thoughts about that or are are speculative and and i'd like to believe that we're becoming more conscious as a species and i do think that it it, it does seem to be you know if it, what people don't often think about like what historians think about the the history of the human species and they always think about it in terms of events like battles they think about it in terms of um inventions like the invention of fire was a big one that changed how we live right but, they often don't talk about the fact that our consciousness has actually evolved too, the way that the way that we've thought about ourselves. Um, and so if you look way back like 10,000 years ago, um, it's likely that people had a very different concept of their, of their self, um, of, of who they were and had a very diff- different way of experiencing the world. Um, not just as a result of their external circumstances, but just the way that they were talking and thinking about themselves. Um, if you look at like the way the Iliad and the, the Odyssey are written, it's almost like this voice is talking to them in their head. Um, and then there's interesting theories like the bicameral mind theory, where that voice kind of merged and just became us, became our sense of self, um, uh, which is one theory. So, but the point being that our, our sense of self and our consciousness or whatever you want to call it is, is definitely evolving along with our, our cultural evolution and along with our, um, you know, our, our, um, you know, epigenetic changes. So we're, 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 we're changing as a species and that's for sure. And, um, and I think, I think that right now we're in the midst of a, a definitely a, a mental revolution that's being, um, almost catalyzed or forced by a lot of, uh, you know, we're, we're at a period in time where we're, it's like this massive psychological experiment because <laughs> that we don't know, what happens when you connect the entire globe and give us right. media and then you give us, uh, and then you, you just enter all these things into, into the equation that are just completely novel, different ways of relating to each other, you know, just completely different norms. Um, and what, I mean, we've seen the mental health statistics are really stark recently. Yes. There's a lot of isolation. There's a lot of, um, you know, resulting. Um, belief systems are completely changing like the structures of beliefs being handed down to people about religion or whatnot are, are breaking down um and so people are starting to question you know what what should they believe in and you know some people have, have just no idea what to believe in and or, or what, what should give them purpose so i think there's just all these factors coming together that are making it very important that we look inward and start to understand our minds i mean extremely well said i mean this is like my area man i'm all over this stuff i love talking about this stuff you know i once had somebody tell me as one of my clients and uh, she's a licensed clinical psychologist and she's very into all this stuff we're talking about and she her a lot of her research is based off of meaningfulness and creating meaning in your life. And, and her kind of theory is that today's human has a lot more time to think about their place in the universe. 
and the luxuries of life and the way we're living and the connectivity that they're questioning, who am I? Where, where am I in this versus, you know, ancient humans, more of the thought process a little different related to how do I survive on a daily basis, potentially? What do you think about yeah. that? Yes, yes. I, that's, uh, that's, you just entered my favorite topic. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I think, I think this is the, this is exactly what we should, should all be talking about right now. Um, this is, I think that, so like the Greeks, the Greeks spent a lot of time um, lounging around and wondering how does the world work? What's going on up there in the heavens? Also, how does my own mind work? What, mm -hmm. what makes me happy? And they actually came up with some really good answers. Um, Greek philosophers, it was never about just highfalutin talk and theories. It was always about like, how do you live a good life? How do you become happy? And our mental soft software system actually hasn't changed a lot. It's pretty similar to the Greeks. It's just our circumstances have changed a lot. There's a lot, the world looks very different, but the, the same principles that Aristotle was talking about, you know, um, Socrates, when he said an unexamined life is not worth living. Right. Um, you know, that is so key. And so I think we're in the second age of philosophy hmm. where it's like, you know, in my lifetime, I haven't had to worry about a, a war really. I mean, all the wars being fought are like out over there. And like, I, I hear about them on TV, yeah. but in my own life that cr has created this incredible luxury where I don't have a, a survival threat. Um, I feel very fortunate. And so I get this, I get the luxury to think about what should I, you know, what should I do with my life? What, why am I here? Um, and those are questions that our ancestors never had to deal with because basically for them, um, Maslow's hierarchy was inverted. Mm -hmm. So Maslow's hierarchy of needs being at the bottom, you have, um, you know, safe, um, safety and, and food and shelter. And, and then as you get near to the top, it's more about relationships and feeling loved and, and meaning. And then at the top, you have like purpose and self self-actualization or self-transcendence. Um, for them, they, that pyramid was kind of inverted. It was easy for them to get their sense of purpose because they were just trying to live the next day. And for them, they got their sense of meaning from their tribe. Um, for about, you know, 2 million years, we were living in these tight knit 50 to hundred man hunter gatherer tribes. And that's where a lot of our mental software comes from our evolved psychology. Um, but in recent times that pyramids gotten inverted. So now you, now you know, it's easier for us to get shelter and food if we're lucky. But at the top, you know, where do we get our purpose from now that we don't need each other for survival? How do we form meaningful bonds? That's kind of an effort now. And, you know, it's not an easy problem. There's a lot of a lot of diff a lot of factors going on. Oh, for sure. Um, it's something that I, I certainly think about a lot. I've had many discussions and think, um, you know, for people where you're really kind of living in the best time ever right now in terms of being having a lot of your basic needs being met. And obviously, that's that's not for everybody that, you know, there are certain certainly people struggling regularly throughout the world. But in general, especially if you look at the United States, people's needs are met pretty much. I mean, even think about it. This is crazy. I mean, there are people who don't have much, but they have a cell phone you know, they have an iPhone 10 and they're connecting with anybody for that. And I often think of what are the, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, we don't know what this is all leading to. Like, 
And I think anytime a new technology or anything is introduced into our consciousness, there's unintended consequences for that. And I, mm. I think we're seeing the unintended consequences is the isolation, the, the loneliness, which is ironic considering that these things have been created to bring us together, funny enough. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think it, it like in order to understand the current mental health ecosystem, you have to look at the environment in which we evolved, which was these tight knit hunter gatherer groups. And we still require all of that in person interaction. Yes. So even though our tools, even though our tools make us seem more connected on the surface, you know, maybe you have over a thousand friends on Facebook, but how many of those people are actual friends that you could rely on that right. you actually share? deepest emotions with as opposed to your surface level um, accomplishments and you know the psychologists have shown that about seven per, only about seven percent of communication is verbal so 93 percent of our communications cut out if you're if you're not um, in, if you're not in person looking at someone's facial expression looking at someone's um, you know how does, eye contact body language um, and so I think that psychological sustenance is is missing if we're just connected with um, tools. Now, all, all these technologies great. I think it can bring us together yes. in all sorts of new ways, but it just needs to be. It, we need to like think. We need to think about using it as a tool. It's it requires like like very intentional um, application. We can't just um, we can't just use it as it as we're getting pleasure from it um, because. <laughs> <laughs> that's what's happening though <laughs> people are just using it as like a pleasure bomb and um you know if you're listening to rogan like i do sometimes it's he mentioned something i thought was very interesting and which was basically like we've given people all this power with the phone and things of that nature and we didn't earn it we didn't earn it at all and we don't there's no instruction book for it it's like people yeah. just received something and they started doing it without learning how to use it for as a yeah. tool so let's just use it for pleasure and it's become like fairly destructive for a lot of people with that yeah yeah i you know i think in general like our brains didn't come with a user manual <laughs> and that was necessary until recently and now it's like okay wait it's never been more important to understand how you work because i think there's a big difference between pleasure and fulfillment and those are kind of the two mm. buckets that you could separate happiness into short-term pleasure is this like, YOLO mentality. <laughs> I think it's important to, to take risks and live, you know, live life for that day Certainly. To, some extent, to some extent, but as soon as you make YOLO, your your operating, uh, <laughs> whatever you want to, you uh. your operating philosophy, um, long-term fulfillment takes work. I mean, uh, meaningful, meaningful work, meaningful relationships, meaningful, a meaningful and intentionally designed life, a fulfilling life is not, is, you know, instant gratification is often at odds with that. And so there's, there's trade-offs. And I just think it's important that like we understand, you know, when we're not, not, not that we need to go to extremes and like not have a, you know, a social media account or something, um, which some people might choose to do, but just like being aware of, of the trade-offs. Yeah, certainly. I think so. It's, that's interesting. Uh, happiness being kind of the buckets of those two things. I never thought about it that way. Um, but it's interesting because it makes me think about the, the difference between the two. 
but you know, also think about, you know, you said kind of in the second age of philosophy, where does that merge into, we're really going to get out there a little bit. What's the third stage? What, where do we go beyond this? What, where, what do you see? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I wish I had a, <laughs> that's deep, man. <laughs> I, yeah. Let me, I'll, I'll speculate. I mean, I think things are going to get worse before they get better, mm. um, but I do think they're going to get better. I'm, I'm optimistic because I mean, it's, it's becoming, I think everything that's going on now is, is going to force us to really examine how, how we should be living and how we should be um, interacting with the planet, interacting with each other, designing our own lives because um, yeah, we were just kind of all this, all these changes happened so rapidly, we didn't have time to think about it. Um, but now we're starting, it's like, like I said, this massive psychological experiment. It's like, you know, you've, you've got the, you've got the entire world is like, imagine the entire world were, were an ant farm and, and <laughs> you know, the, the, the tribe has been expanded by like 20 million, a factor of 20 million. Right because there's 2 billion people on Facebook. So from, from a tribe of a hundred, you go up to 2 billion. Um, that's, that's how connected we are. And, but the great thing about that is that even though it might cause some initial problems, which I think it, it might do for the foreseeable future, we can actually, we've never had so much data as to what does make us happy. I mean, you've never, before the Greek philosophers could only philosophize what, about what made them happy. Now we have, feedback and input from you know two billion people that are online right now and growing um uh, well more than that that are online but just active facebook accounts um so we can start to realize what what does you know we can start to to look at the ant the ant farm from this massive um uh from this perspective where we have a lot of good data as to what does make humans happy what does make society flourish and so i think we'll eventually come to the right answers because i think we're a very resilient and very intelligent species, but it's just going to take some time to actually um, start to look at the effects and start to measure them. And I mean, the science is already showing us what a lot of, you know, for example, uh, Facebook makes you anxious and depressed. <laughs> um, you know, that's, but that's obvious if you observe your own mind when, exactly. you're on, when you spend too much time on social media, you start to realize you're comparing yourself with others all the time. Um, so I think the key here for progress is that we start to look inward, which I think is like the crux of meditation. It's introspection. So we start to look inward. We start to understand our own minds. Um, that's what each of us individually can do. And then I hope that starts to create a better future where we realize, you know, um, and I guess getting to your question about the future, we realize that advancement, if you look back throughout history, the lasting human advancements that have actually increased our our happiness the most are often philosophies yes. um, um, and the mind is is not paid enough attention to it's actually something that we can understand it's something that we can program um, it's something that we can you know, I, I think it's the next great frontier, like neuroscience is still in its infancy. And so I think, you know, whereas a lot of these tech moguls like Elon Musk is so, so focused on getting to Mars and space and, and it's like, geez, man, like, well, first off, there's a lot going on on this planet. <laughs> it's true. The ocean. But, 
what about inside your own head? I mean, Elon Musk went on Joe Rogan and said, it's hard to be me. I can't even be like, you wouldn't want to be inside my yeah. head. I can't shut it off. It's like, geez, man, you haven't, you're trying to like save the species and you haven't figured out your own life. Yet. <laughs> um, so I don't want to be, I think he's doing great things. I don't want to. Isn't <laughs> he doing say, that thing Neuralink yeah. though? Is, isn't that kind of like uh, something to that yeah. effect, you know? But again, so he thinks that he could, well, he thinks he understands that, I mean, we don't, we know so little about the brain and he thinks right. he can add layer to it essentially and plug us in with more technology as if that's going to make us happy it's definitely but, not <laughs> like yeah like maybe sometime in the future but we're not there yet well we do have the tools we have thousands of years of eastern traditions that were yeah. specifically what while the, the west has been focused on improving our external circumstances the east for thousands of years was focused on training the mind to be as happy as possible not not to get back to some baseline norm like like Western mental health, but to actually be 100% happy. That that's kind of what they might call enlightenment. Um, and they actually have like maps for getting there. And mm -hmm. I think that's so incredible. And I think we should pay more attention to those maps because they're they're valuable. I mean, that's like a ticket to to human fundamental well being. Why don't we pay attention to those as much? Do you think? I think we're starting to. I think I think uh, the West was suspicious because it's. Um, traditionally, you know, they've been steeped in, in spiritual traditions that might come across as kind of woo-woo or mm -hmm. out there. But um, now the science is backing it up. And you see this incredible age that we're in where the Eastern traditions for training the mind are now meeting Western study of the mind. So basically, the, the mind was being studied from the inside out in the East for, for thousands of years. And now in the West, you know, Western psychology is pretty new, but for at least a hundred and some years, we've been studying it from the outside in. And now you combine those two worlds and you put monks in a neuroscience lab and measure their brain waves. Amazing. And you start to see these incredible results. And I think it's, that's what's going to lead to this new age of discovery where we all realize we can um, train the mind. Yeah, mental fitness. I think mental fitness is the next big health revolution. That's amazing. I think about like when I was going through my undergraduate and graduate studies, you know, there was almost nothing out there related to research related to like trust and meaningfulness and forging relationships in that way. And these different topics, you know, and it, it was like maybe a couple of years ago, I started reading research on those type of topics, even like hugging and things of that nature and the feelings behind it. And I thought something's changing here because in the past that would be considered very foo-foo uh, stuff. Like, you know, that's not real science, you know, it's quasi stuff. But I, I actually think in some ways that our, our big dependence, it seems on, on uh, technology is pushing us uh, more rapidly towards our inner selves. So in many ways, while it's positive, but it can't be destructive, I think it's just accelerating our desire to look inward for ourselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's, an, it's an exciting time. Um, it's a really exciting time that we're alive right now. And as soon as you 
like you said, if there's a study on hugging and as soon as you, as soon as a scientist can tell you, yeah, oxytocin is released in the right. brain when you hug. It's like, as soon as you say that, any connotations that it's like foo-foo or whatever is, it's like there's actual, you, you can actually measure what's happening in the brain. So I think that's going to be key for getting more people to, to do these practices. What's funny though, because sometimes it takes the science for people to get into it, but it's interesting because don't you intuitively know that when you have appropriate touch with somebody, it makes you feel good. <laughs> you know, people, <laughs> they can't believe it until there's somebody, some study says, oh, that's good for you. But like, but haven't you been doing that? Or if you haven't done that, haven't you seen it? Like, you know, it's like, why do we always need this validation on something to believe in it? You know? Yeah. Well, Darian, I think that that gets back to this thing, this issue of introspection. I think we're in a kind of a crisis of a lack of introspection right now, because if you, if you do have the self-awareness to look inward when you're, it's not that hard to figure out what makes you happy. Right. Um, <laughs> but it's never been easier to, to distract ourselves. We're alone, True. you know, standing in, a, in line at Starbucks and we can pull out our phone and pop on Twitter. And, and then, you know, we're every bit of downtime, you'd almost be crazy to, you know, to, to go to the bathroom without your phone. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh those are the times when we used to like be alone with our thoughts and look inwards and, and start thinking more and i and i so i think that's that's going to be key for for all this because you're right you don't need the scientific studies if you just carefully observe your mind in all these different yeah. scenarios you can really see what's what's going on in there so i want to jump into kind of what i originally what i saw what you posted which is about psychedelic research i don't remember the post completely but i think i remember you talking about you know there's some real benefit to this research and you know discussions about it so what was the for you what was the angle or how did you get interested in like at least learning about it and researching it yeah initially uh, well actually I guess it goes back. I, I mean, I, I, I took some psychedelics mm -hmm. um, back in, in high school, but th that was more of an experimentation. And um, yeah, it was, you know, more than anything, that experience just showed me that, look, our normal waking state of our normal state of operating is just one slice of how we could be experiment experiencing the world there's very different ways of experiencing the world. And, and so your mind can change a lot depending on, um, you know, obviously chemical changes, but, but um, that anyways, that's what first kind of, that was kind of my curious experimental stage, but I was never really interested in it as a, as a, as a tool. Um, and I stayed away from psychedelics for a while until recently I read a book um, called, how to change your mind. By Love that Taylor. book. Love it. Incredible. Incredible yeah, I book. I recommend it. And basically he's a skeptical guy who's like a New York times bestselling author um, who started, he, I think he was at like a party and someone mentioned psychedelics yeah. and he thought he had all these miscon, you know, thought it was this just hippie thing. He had never taken psychedelics. Um, and anyway, started diving into the science. And as it turns out, there's just this fascinating story behind psychedelics and how, um, there was actually a lot of research being done, great research in the 60s and 70s. And there was just basically it was a, a political um, agenda to, to get these things 
out of the public hands because you know hippies were you know it was really yeah reagan nixon didn't didn't want the hippies um you know um uh protesting their wars and whatnot so mm-hmm. so all those re- all that research was shut down there was like some press that was created bad press around drugs and just this war on drugs but as it turns out and, and i'm not saying i'm not saying you know we should all go out there and just take these things because there are <laughs> definitely drawbacks for sure um, you want to take it in a safe environment and whatnot, but the research is really promising. And that's what I started to get more interested in. Um, I recently um, spoke with Paul Austin, who has a company called the third wave and the third wave. I think it's a great way of describing this. We, we talked about the, the second age of uh, philosophy. Uh-huh. I don't know. Second, second age, but this is apparently the third wave of psychedelics. So the first wave was like the shamans, and um, indigenous tribes, they would take these things. Um, a lot of tr- indigenous tribes down in South America still do these, do this regularly. They'll take like ayahuasca uh, like every Friday. Wow. Um, but the second wave was the hippies where they started to bring the, you know, this became mainstream for a while um, in America. But a lot of stuff went wrong. You know, there was... Tim Leary over at Harvard was getting people to tune in and drop out of school. And it's just like, they're very irresponsible exactly. use of psychedelics. And then the third wave is now, all right, let's let science, let's let science lead the way here. And so that's actually what I posted about. I think the post you're referring to was that John Hopkins, yeah. uh, John Hopkins had recently raised $17 million for a research lab um, for psychedelic drugs and um, this has been like years. And I mean, it took it was took so many political hoops that they had to jump through and whatnot. But now there's all these incre- you know, clinical tri- trials going on. And um, soon there'll be FDA approval. You know, it's like um, psilocybin mushrooms are, were just decriminalized in, in Denver where I am. So there's a change occurring for sure. Oh, my God. I need to go to Denver stat. <laughs> I need to be like <laughs> seriously man i had such a powerful experience with psych with uh, psilocybin as a tool and uh it was just so eye-opening for me i mean just some background for me is you know when i started researching it you know i was like i'm just not going to take this to take it you know i got to really like think about this i need to research it i like to look things up and so i started getting into some of the you know older research from John Hopkins and then divinity studies related to it. And I was just blown away that like divinity students, it was like for most of them, their top spiritual experience of all time for them. And I said, wow, man, as somebody who is um, a spiritual person, you know, I'm a Christian. I say, you know what, these things can exist for, I believe for me to experience you know, my spirituality on an even greater plane. And, and uh, when I did it, it just, it made sense to me. I was like, you know what, this, this has changed my life. This is, this is going to change a lot of people's lives. If we just allow it to be done in a safe way, the right places, you know, the, you know, reading the, the set and the setting is crucial. It's incredibly crucial yeah. to the experience, you know, and, and I like that Michael Pollan, he talked a lot about, you know, it it may it's definitely not for everybody. I mean, there's some people with mental illness illness and stuff. It may not be the right option for them and stuff. Uh, but I really feel like 
we are it's more it's a more sophisticated version of looking at psychedelics now it's, like you said science based and um damn i need to get to denver man <laughs> i need to like check that out well, man yeah so i mean you can't they're decriminalized so you, um yeah you, you can't be arrested for for buying them but they're not like available to are they going to be like um like clinics at some point so that's what they're talking about. Next year, they're going to vote on whether to actually legalize them. Now, Michael Pollan actually recently wrote an article saying, like, we need to slow down. He doesn't want these things on the street yet. Yeah. I think he, well, he might have a point. I mean, <laughs> so, like, I think there's two, I think there's two kind of safe ways to, to do these things. And I think I probably should say for legal reasons or whatever that I don't, I'm not recommending drugs, you know, of course do these in a, a safe setting or in a legal country but um uh one is microdosing, which mm-hmm. has become really popular in silicon valley and whatnot and that's basically where you take a sub perceptual dose of the drug um and such a, a small amount where it's gonna um it's gonna change you might feel a little more energetic or a little more outgoing that day but you're not like in another universe if you are going to take a full dose, it's highly recommended um, by all the literature that I've read that you're in a very safe set and setting, probably with a professional guide or someone who's who's been licensed even to, to do this, um, if they're like a clinical therapist. Um, and they just make sure that, you know, that the, the, there's like the soothing music and you might put an eye mask on and they're, they're there to kind of comfort you and they tell you what to expect. And, and I think because I think things can go wrong. I mean, the mind for is sure. a delicate thing. Um, but uh, yeah, that said, like you, like you were saying, all these studies around, you know, people have had life changing experiences because it, it can rewire our sense of our belief systems and it can give someone a, a sense of purpose. It can help, you know, it's helped people quit um, addictions. Yeah. Um, uh, psilocybin has been useful for that. And um and I don't think we want to lump them all into one category either because there's different effects. Very yeah. different. It's like, you know, Ibocaine and all that stuff and ayahuasca. And these things aren't the same. <laughs> They're powerful yeah. nature of it, you know. Yeah. They shouldn't be on the streets. I agree with Michael Pollan. It shouldn't just be like, hey, you can just go get it. Like like in Washington State, I mean, you can just get like weed. Like it's like chewing gum here, you know. It's no big deal. But I don't think, I don't think anything like psychedelics should ever be like that. It's too powerful. It it can rip apart your mind if you're not in the right situation. Like I was on a hike with a guide. So mm. I had a very, um, I would say, a sophisticated experience, a very um, detailed guided experience. So it was extremely positive. And even when I was veering off into weird areas, I was always brought back. So... I can't imagine doing it just by yourself, hanging out, whatever. It's not like for fun, <laughs> you know, it's not like, and so I think you're right. You know, I always tell people, I'm like, Hey, I'm not saying everybody should go out and do it. I'm saying the potential is tremendous and you shouldn't just whimsically go out and do things like this. But I think the conversation is so relevant in the time we're in. It's like these things are all colliding at the same time. Meditation, psychedelics, love, trust, meaningfulness where what is our place in the world in the universe 
space, time. It's like literally everything's crashing like a big wave at the same time. Honestly, it's extremely exciting to me. Yes, I feel the same way. You're pumped, I could tell. (laughs) Yeah, there's no other time I would rather have been born for sure. I mean, you look back in history, up until up until 1800 the the uh life expect average life expectancy worldwide was about 28 so i'd be i'd be nearing uh, <laughs> but i'd um, be dead already don't <laughs> but uh i mean I, well i guess that statistics thrown off because a lot of it was like childbirth deaths but, but yeah anyways it's, yeah it's a great time to be alive and like you said just this convergence of worlds where it's like you know we suddenly we have access to um like you and i would never would have heard of these meditation techniques um you know even like before i guess like the beatles came over with their guru it's unlikely that that anyone would have um would have even heard of like meditation as as like a normal thing to do and and now the science is coming out too so we have tools for studying the mind um we have access to incredible research being done we have the dalai lama who's willing to to scientifically study um, the mind. And, and he's actually said that he would change his mind if science proved him wrong about anything, which is just so incredible. That's incredible. All these leaders that, all these leaders that are, are taking the right approach and a convergence of East and West and a lot of positive psychology research. And so I think you're right. This is a big, wave that's going on and is going to continue to kind of become i think a a so like a cultural norm i i talk about like this idea of mental fitness that you can train the mind like Mm -hmm. a muscle um it's kind of like with jogging and exercise jogging before the 1960s was unheard of unless you were like training for the olympics well track me you'd be a weirdo if you were (laughs) running out of the road but (laughs) now um and, and then you got there's this guy named jim, uh, jim fix who wrote a book on running and actually helped to make it really popular um his book was was viral and he talked about finding money on the side of the road and he had like all these kind of like marketing tricks in his book right. but he started to make jogging popular and he started to talk about the research that was out there about how it helped your heart and then there was nike of course and mm-hmm. So, so it took, but it after the, it took like thirty years after the research was already very clear for jogging to become like a normal thing and for exercising to become a normal thing. So I think I think the same thing is occurring, hopefully at a more rapid pace, with uh, mental fitness, where we start to realize, um, wow, it's really worth paying attention to our minds. And yes, yeah, psychedelics are another tool. Float tanks right. are meditation is a tool. Um, and just thinking about how we can combine these different methods to really optimize our experience on this planet. So what do you think we're going to learn about ourselves? You know, all this, this crash, this wave of information and all this data, as you were saying in the beginning, what do you think we're going to learn about ourselves that's going to really change us completely or really turn, us, turn the corner to a diff- take us to the next level? Yeah, um, I think we'll keep getting better at understanding how to how to train the mind and how to have an optimal experience, um, how to um, how to really optimize our well-being, and 
I kind of I kind of lump this into two buckets because I think there's there's two different ways to train the mind. One is experience dependent neuroplasticity, which is to say, um, just to break down that term, experience dependent dependent on how you interact with your environment. Mm-hmm. Um, neuroplasticity, the brain is plastic; it changes, and so we're going to learn what are the healthy inputs for our mind. Like, you know, let's say scrolling through Twitter is like feeding your mind junk food. Um, How really, what should we be doing interacting with our environment for an optimal mind? And I think a lot of the answers there are, are, you look at evolutionary psychology, um, you look at what our hunter gather, you know, how our brains are kind of wired to operate. So um, I, my guess is, you know, and, and, some research has come out to to prove this that being in nature is really healthy for the mind mm-hmm. that um even you know yeah obviously healthy relationships good conversation um feeding our minds healthy inputs is, so that's the first bucket the second is self-directed neuroplasticity which is basically depending on how you direct your attention the mind rewires itself and that's meditation and th- and i think we're going to get better at communicating these methods which right now are mostly kind of designed for like monks who would have been living in a very different world than the one we're in in now. Um, So I think we're going to get better at communicating them, better at using them, better at applying them, um, better at making the habit easier to stick and also just have a better understanding of how they actually train the mind. Like a lot of the meditation research is super promising, but it's still in its early stages Um, so like we, and a lot of studies haven't really, haven't really separated out the different types of meditation and their effects on the brain and and the nervous system. So, um, I think we'll just keep learning more and more about what makes a healthy mind. And then that'll be something that's eventually taught in schools and something that's just a regular part of our lives. So how will we, you know, I always think about this kind of this coexistence model of how will we coexist by turning inward while we're continually accelerating our technical technological advancement you know will things like social media still be around at some point you know i think about like when i was growing up you know there was a lot of technology actually it just became obsolete because one thing deleted the next deleted the next I know there's a world of people who think, man, my iPhone's everything. And, and to that, I say, you know, the form of that's going to change probably one day. Actually, that probably won't even be available to you at some point down the line. But how do we coexist with turning inward while accelerating outward with the technology? Yeah, yeah, I think, well, I think, I think, um, hmm. Yeah, I mean, the outside world, I don't think progress, I don't think uh, technological advancement will, will stop anytime soon. Like you said, like, the landscape might look in te- incredibly different in 10 years. But um, coupled with that, it's become so important that we gain control over our mind so that we can best use the technology that we have as a tool mm. rather than getting used by it you know, right now we're like victims a lot of times because we're yes. inadvertently hacked by people who have designed this software to, you know, even something as simple as you're watching a video on YouTube and the next one that starts playing automatically is like perfectly 
adapted for what you would have wanted to see next. Yeah. So even something like that, where it seems like they're kind of helping you out, they're actually profiting from you spending more time on their, on their platform. They don't have your best interests in mind. They just want to capture your attention. Yeah. So we're living this attention economy. And my hope is that I don't, I mean, we live in a capitalist world. I don't think it's possible that you would suddenly convince every, every company to be, um, perfectly ethical in the way they're designing their software (laughs) of course sure apple recently created something like screen time where you can like from certain apps but a they're a little more aligned with the consumer because they actually don't benefit from you spending more time on facebook and and the second thing is it took them a while to implement that i mean they could have done it a while ago but it took a lot of social pressure a lot of bad press you know the articles being written about how they're how bad phones are for us so I really see the change, the changes occurring, starting with each of us individually, realizing that we have a responsibility to train our own minds. And there was an article recently that came out in the New York Times. Um, the title was Addicted to Screens. That's really a you problem. <laughs> I really like this article. Most, Love it. Most of these articles are talking about how bad these companies are for, and, and look, I mean, that's we had, but each of us individually is responsible for not becoming just this, this moth attracted to the <laughs> amp and then spend our whole life banging our head into the, uh, in, into the light bulb. I mean, each of us needs to realize, wake up and realize that, Hey, this is how our minds work. This is how we're being captured. This is how we should actually be using our time. And once each of us individually does that, you know, it's like if everyone becomes healthy and stops eating junk food in the grocery store, <laughs> Suddenly, people, companies will stop selling it. <laughs> like each of us also has our own responsibility to stop giving in to the um, the products that are pushed at us. So I think I think um, I really think it starts with the individual. Yeah, no, that's that's a great answer. I I'm, I know I'm throwing out some pretty it's out there mm-hmm. deep stuff, man. You know, but I it's how I think. I think about these things, and I figured you were the guy to talk about stuff like this. You seem to have a really great grasp on it. No, I think I, I think I'm like anybody else. I struggle with my phone and I admit it. I think, you know, my business, both of my businesses are really through my phone based on my phone. So I'm, I'm on it a decent amount of time. Um, but I think like anybody, I struggle with how do I create separation in the right way for that. And I think like my, journey into flow therapy and psychedelics and all that stuff, just ways for me. It's just, it's learning. It's, it's courses for me. Okay. How do I separate this time? How do I create meaningfulness in this space without this? Because I think you're right. I think it's just, it's going to keep going. The reality is we're going to have the technology. It will change. Maybe it's form and it's shape, how it's presented, things of that nature. I'm not going to stop people from having outrage on Twitter and all these things. I just don't have to participate in it. Yes. <laughs> you know, I don't have to do it. Like, I don't have Twitter and a bunch of, I just have LinkedIn and I have my podcast. And I have my work and I've learned over time that that works for me. Now, does that mean I may be missing out on some other things? Maybe, I don't know, but I've also learned that I can't focus my attention on like five different platforms. I just can't. I'm just like very mediocre if I do that. And mm. but if I focus on one thing or two things that I really like and put effort into it, then 
my effectiveness rises exponentially <clears throat> with that. So that's my own personal journey. So I really think that's that's probably right. You know, it's a you problem. <laughs> I mean, you could people have been putting out technology forever and you could blame the companies, but you're the one using it. You don't have to use it. It's not like it's a requirement, you know, for you, you know, so I love that perspective. I think it's I think it's very interesting. I haven't I haven't seen that article. I'd love to read it, though, for sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll send that your way. It's. It's written about this guy, Nira Yal, just came out with a book called Indistractable. So the article is largely about him. Um, it's an interesting read, but absolutely. definitely starts with each of us individually taking responsibility for our minds and our well-being, because I think that's what we can control. I mean, you see people complaining all the time. Like, people love to complain about this or that. <laughs> Everything group is the problem that you know this company is the problem it's like well maybe maybe you're the problem <laughs> maybe you're not the problem but maybe the, maybe you have the solution for yourself you know maybe maybe take responsibility for your own life and your own what you can control i mean that's really all all that each of us can do well that's very difficult for people liam because once you start reflecting on who you are and maybe you're the problem it's very scary for people being honest is scary for people they're like, oh, I'm an asshole. I actually, and people think, and if a person really believes they're an asshole, they really looked at it, they're like, wow, that's horrible. Like, people don't want to believe they're assholes or that they're jerks, stuff like that. They're like, no, uh, that's not me. I'm not the reason why, I've, you know, all these bad things have happened in my life, you know. Like, it's very difficult for, I talk to so many people who research this stuff and, you know, professionals and the whole topic of honesty and looking at yourself Oh my gosh, self-deception, incredibly powerful stuff, but very scary for human beings to actually do it. Yeah, we, we constantly, constantly deceive ourselves. You're right. And there was a, a video I watched recently. I love uh, this guy, Jay Shetty. He was a monk for a couple of years and now he's uh, basically his, his whole tagline is making wisdom go viral. So he's got all these great <laughs> videos, get millions of views. And one of his videos, the tagline was kind of this clickbait <laughs> tagline was uh, how, why meditation made me a bad person. <laughs> of course, of course, it wasn't actually about how meditation made him a bad person, but he said meditation made him realize where he was a bad person. Mm. And this was like a reckoning that I've had to face too. And, you know, not, not that, not that I'm still, there's a lot that I'm working on, but, but I also, you know, just that initial reckoning of, wow, like. I didn't even realize all the subtle ways where my behaviors are manipulative or mm -hmm. have a motivation behind them. That's, that's not what I'm claiming it to be. Uh, even I didn't realize my own motivation behind this action, or even I didn't realize um, that my mind was doing this or that. So the stories we tell ourselves about who we are, are often, fantasies and we can start to see through those fantasies and start to see how others really perceive us and start to see our true motivations by just taking a minute to sit down and observe our minds through meditation yeah for sure you know it's funny when i used to run a private um luxury fitness club for over a decade and when we were hiring people I used to ask this one question all the time like what is the biggest like misperception that people have about you and it was a very targeted question because I wanted to see how people thought about themselves and like and other people thought of them. 
it was always funny when people would say, well, some people say I'm just, they say I'm standoffish. I'm kind of a jerk, but I don't think I'm like that. I'm like, most people think you're like that, but you don't think you're like that. <laughs> like, no, I'm like, there's a real disconnect here. Are you being honest with yourself? Like a bunch of people think you're a jerk and you're the only one that doesn't think you're a jerk. <laughs> like, you're probably missing out. You, you got a lot to work on, man, you know? And I think this how we think about ourselves. Do we really know ourselves? Do we really understand how we behave, how that affects other people? Are we willing to actually have that conversation? I mean, I could tell you, like, my wife is hugely into nature. Like, she's like a nature junkie. And I never understood it. Like, I've been married for 15 years, and I'd be like, I don't get this. I, I, don't, I don't feel this. You know, I really understand it. And through my course of learning myself, and especially after I had my guided, medita guided walk for, um, with psychedelics, the light bulb turned on immediately because I had explored you know, the inner workings of how nature was important in my life. And almost immediately, it rewired how I thought about nature. And now we have a very similar view on it, all because I tried to explore what was, why did I have this feeling? And... I think that's just really scary to like go inside yourself and say, let me see what I'm all about, man. It could be weird. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Are you, you cut out at the end there for me. So I, I didn't hear that last thing you said. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, you could look inside yourself and you could say, Hey man, this could be the scariest thing in my life is me, <laughs> you know? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think, I think that's part of what makes meditation so difficult is that we don't like to be alone with our own thoughts and start to realize who we are. Uh, it's, it is totally scary and jarring, but that's what, that's what it takes to grow, I think. And it's, it's a, it's a journey that's worthwhile. Totally agree. Well, Liam, thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy guy. I'm busy. The world's busy, I swear. Um, but I'm so grateful that we had the opportunity to have this kind of long form conversation about, I think it's a pretty important topic. So um, I'm grateful for you agreeing to come on here and speak with me. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having me on. It's, it's been a fantastic conversation and I really appreciate the work you're doing and the great, the great questions that you're asking. I think we should all be asking thanks, these man. questions. Totally agree. Well, I'm sure we will be in touch in the future. And uh, thank you so much and have a great day, man. Absolutely. You as well. All right. Bye. Bye. Sure, we have 30 seconds to tell you that drivers who switch to Progressive could save big. But then what? Well, there is a nice piece of stock music playing behind me that a talented composer worked really hard on. So let's enjoy it. almost overshadows the saving big when you switch to progressive part. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. I bet you I can lap this studio in 15 seconds. Oh, I can't wait to see this. Let's go. That was the Kid Miro. I'm Michelle Beadle. Tune into our new Formula One show, Fast and Loose Sidecast. We go live on AMP every race Sunday. Boom! Three seconds to go. Download AMP and follow us at AMP Presents F1 on AMP.